morning. Please be seated. My name is Brian Musler. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar. Uh, like any sermon where there's a guest preacher, this always starts with people leaning over to their guests and saying, that's not the guy. Uh, normal guy looks a lot more like Mike Shanahan, and he's up in Wisconsin this week uh, visiting family and doing some trout fishing. So it's great that Colby gets that time uh, with some family to just relax and kind of recover. If you could all open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through, uh, 10, 23 through 111, uh, we're going to be talking about freedom today. Uh, and as Spencer mentioned when he first got up here, uh, it's Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we are very grateful that, for the freedom that we have as a country, especially the freedom that we have to come and worship. Uh, not everywhere in the world can do this uh, freely and openly. We, they can't gather as a congregation. They can't hear and just uh, openly read from God's word. Uh, we do appreciate that. But what we've seen and what Colby noted on last week is that sometimes this freedom can lead us to division. And particularly the past couple of years, this freedom has driven us to disagree with one another. It's caused divisiveness both in our society and in the church. Uh, and what we want to do is look at the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about this freedom? How are we supposed to use it? The freedom that we have both as a nation, secularly, and the freedom that we have in the gospel uh, with Christ. So we're going to read starting in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Paul writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who formed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as uh, humble children. We're seeking your wisdom. We're seeking your word. Uh, please speak into our hearts this morning. Show us how we can live out our freedom well. Show us how we can live it out uh, to your glory, how we can spread your word to the nations freely, how we can live in a way that just exhibits uh, Christ in everything we say or do, that seeks to serve others, not to uh, glorify ourselves or build up our own knowledge, but to help spread the knowledge of you and your kingdom. Father, it's in your Son's most holy name that we pray. Amen. So this morning as we're gathering, we have uh, pillar churches gathering all over the world, and we have a missions team out in France, uh, which is great. So they're on the ground, and this week they're going to be playing music and trying to relate to that culture there uh, through a means that allows them to spread the gospel uh, in that nation. And whenever we go to a foreign nation like that, you've got to make sure that your actions are going to be conducive to the environment. So the first side of that is knowing the actual laws of that nation. Many nations follow very similar laws and mandates that we do. Can't steal, uh, can't foment insurrection, you cannot uh, murder, uh, standard things. However, there's some really fun what-offs uh, that also exist in different nations. For example, in Venice, Italy, you can't feed the pigeons. Actually illegal. You could be fined or arrested. In Greece, you can't wear high heels in an archaeological site because the heels could damage the stone 
uh, and cause irreparable damage to the site itself. In Thailand, you can't do the three-fingered Hunger Games Katniss Everdeen salute. Uh, it was the sign of the 2014 coup d'etat. It is now illegal to do that, punished by either a fine or expulsion from the country. So if Jennifer Lawrence ever visits Thailand, may the odds be ever in her favor. But there are actually also a lot of other things that could prevent you from having a good witness in the country. Not things that necessarily incarcerate you or eject you from the country, but normal social cues that can prevent you from relating, relating to those around you. For example, in many Middle Eastern countries, you should not shake or do any gestures with your left hand. It's viewed as unclean. You shouldn't show the sole of your foot. By doing those things, you may offend uh, your guests or your hosts and no longer be able to relate with them. Same thing with a thumbs up. Here means good. In Australia, in some places in Africa, it's the equivalent of the middle finger here in the United States, which would be quite the way to start your missions trip. So there's both the law, the legal things that you can and cannot do, and then the things that we fill in with. Uh, <coughs> these exist in our religion as well. We know in the Old Testament we have thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's thinking of Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and the law that we were given to follow the moral guidelines to show ourselves to be God's people. In the New Testament, you have similar commandments, like love one another, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And these are mandates, things that we are told to do, imperatives. Do this or do not do this. However, in Christianity, just like in our secular culture, there are things that fall in between, things that are neither mandated nor prohibited. These things are called adiaphora. It's a Greek word that means indifferent things. It doesn't mean that these things aren't spoken to in the Bible. It simply means that the Bible doesn't command you do or don't do it one way or the other. It may not be spoken to. It may be an issue that it just touches on but doesn't lay down a law. And there's actually been a good amount of contention over which things fall into this category and which things don't. Traditionally, what we'll call these from a doctrinal standpoint is Christian freedom. You call it Christian freedom because you're free to live out <coughs> that aspect of your faith one way or the other. And honestly, Christianity, as compared to Judaism before, it has a very large amount of freedom. You don't have as much ceremonial law. You don't have the dictates of being clean or unclean uh, that very closely guided their uh, worship. However, we still do have a lot of areas where there's question. And traditional ones are infant baptism, for example. Many Christians disagree. The role of alcohol, can you have it or can you not? For years, smoking was a really big one in the church. Are you allowed to smoke? Does that present the image that you want to present of Christ? And we're not actually going to touch on a lot of these issues this morning. We're not going to actually reach a conclusion on them. We are going to touch on them. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to try to figure out what criteria does Paul give us, especially as Americans, for how we can approach these issues and know whether we're doing them to the glory of God or not. You see, with Christian freedom in a free culture, you have a really strange overlap in gray area. Since it's not mandated by our religion, you may think it's not that important from a religious standpoint or our faith doesn't speak to it, but maybe there are some other cultural pressures that does. So, for example, should Christians be involved in politics? Very inflammatory issue the past couple of years. Your society will weigh in on this. How should your identity be formed? And if we don't have a very strong basis in our faith for why we're doing one thing or the other, the tendency can, start, uh, can be for starting to let that culture fill in or letting your own personal desires or experiences fill in.
In the U.S., freedom as a concept is at the very core of who we are. And like we talked about at the beginning, freedom itself is good, but not for its own sake. Before the founding of our nation, Patrick Henry declared, give me liberty or give me death, leading to the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence, which said we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So our society begins to then escalate freedom, the ability to do what we want to this high level. Uh, we are ready to go to war again to prote uh, protect our freedoms. And if we're doing that for the sake of the ability to worship, the ability to do uh, uh, benevolent and caring things, to welcome in others from around the world, that's great. If we're doing it to lift ourselves up, that's where it starts to get distorted, and that's what Paul is going to speak to this morning um, in this scripture. So in a society where freedom is raised to such an important level, instead of asking, what should we do? We start asking, what can we do? And those two should never be convoluted because what you can do may be beneficial to you. It may make you feel good. It may help you conform to society, but it might not align with what the Bible says we should do. And if we start looking to what we can do and conforming to the world around us, the Christianity as a whole, your identity, what we're showing to the world around us starts to blend in. We start to look no different than our culture. Then when we testify to Christ and who he is, we don't look any different. People say, what's the point? Oh, why? You're no different than I am. Or they'll fill in and start to judge our actions for us or the way that we're living out our freedom. Jesus actually approached this issue in Matthew 11 where he said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. By comparing the reaction of how Jesus lived out his freedom to how John lived out his freedom, Christ points to our tendency to polarize these issues. If you leave it to the crowd, they look at it and say, Jesus fell too far into one camp, and John fell too far into another Jesus was over, overly liberal, and John was overly conservative. I know it's a little dangerous to call Jesus liberal, but I'm just saying he's living out his freedom. Now, at this extreme, Christ points to what would be a third way, and what uh, Pastor Timothy Keller commonly uh, called the third way, where he says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, neither denouncing John's actions by abstaining, nor saying that his were wholly correct by indulging. Yet there is a third way where you can either eat or abstain, and in both of those things, still live out your freedom to the glory of God. And that is what uh, Paul is going to point to in our passage today. So in Corinth, they were actually approaching a very similar set of issues that we're approaching in our contemporary society. Corinth was located up on the northeast side of Greece and on a small isthmus that went over into Asia. It was a really common trade route where a lot of people would move through from different cultures, trading goods, and kind of blending culture in that area. What we're going to see is in the initial passage, as he opens up in verse 23, Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And that all things are lawful you see in your Bible is in quotations, and that's actually in quotations in the original text as well. Usually, when you see something in quotations like that, you think, well, it must be written somewhere else in the Bible, and Paul is quoting it. Not in this case. In this case, Paul is quoting it here, and he makes that same quote in 1 Corinthians 6. And what he's saying is, all things are lawful was a common saying in the Corinthian society. 
doesn't exist anywhere else in the Bible. It was something that they were reportedly saying to him over and over again. So he's quoting it back to him and saying, yes, in your contemporary context, in your culture, you think that all things are lawful. But then he counters them and says, but they're not all helpful, and they don't all build up. And that's where he leads into verse 24 and kind of captures the concept that he's going to proceed forward with for the remainder of the text and says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, as the Corinthians were approaching this new liberty they had in their church, no longer tied to the Old Testament Jewish law, uh, and no longer participating in the pagan uh, ceremonies and temples, they were trying to figure out what to do with their freedom. Uh, they had the knowledge that they could do way more than they could before, captured in the phrase, all things are lawful. But they were really hitting the bounds on what to do with it. And as you read through the book of Corinthians, they hit issue after issue, as Paul says, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning, and either rebukes or encourages them in one aspect or the other. Here in this passage, we're at the end of a portion where Paul talked to uh, food offered to idols, and it goes from 8.1 up through 11.1. And what Paul's addressing there is a contemporary example in the Corinthian context of them living out Christian freedom. And as he does that, he gives them four criteria that they can use to judge the, uh, his ultimate conclusion, which is do all to the glory of God. When I first became a Christian, I was 18 years old. One of the immediate questions that I had as I entered the church for the first time was, what am I allowed to do? If you are not a Christian coming into this context, a lot of the words are different. People are dressing and acting differently. You are, something, you are seeing something distinctive. And that can be like entering another country. And you want to know what are the rules. Uh, and as I started to navigate that, what Bible translation should I use? How should I dress? What am I allowed to do? What am I allowed to say? What am I allowed to listen to? The advice that I was given was from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that was kind of the cornerstone of my early Christian up, uh, upbringing. I read and listened a lot from Tim Keller, who also focused on freedom from idols and the centrality of this scripture. So this morning, we're going to focus on that in our own context. And our main point is going to be that we faithfully live out Christian freedom by doing all to the glory of God. That statement in itself sounds great. And when they said, hey, do all to the glory of God, I gave him a thumbs up, and then I walked over to my buddy and said, what does that mean? Because uh, it's too broad. When you hear that, there's still a lot of middle ground, especially if you haven't been a Christian for very long. Or if you have been a Christian for a long time, and you're approaching an issue that's adiaphora that the Bible doesn't specifically speak to. You say, well, I want to honor God and what I'm doing. How do I do it? So we're going to go through four uh, distinct questions that if you can navigate through these and either answer yes or no, that you can get to the point that it's like, well, maybe I should do that action or maybe I should abstain. The first one's going to be from 1 Corinthians 10, 25 through 27. And the question is, would exercising this freedom violate my conscience? Paul writes, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising question on the grounds of conscience. So the first issue that Paul brings up is conscience. And we kind of have a caricature understanding of this from the world around us, right? Watch Looney Tunes growing up and you got the cartoon devil on one shoulder and the cartoon angel on the other, each debating with the individual what they should or shouldn't do. 
kind of a caricature, a dualistic look at uh, the way our conscience works. In my opinion, the better example is Pinocchio uh, with Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket was put there to help advise Pinocchio on what's right or wrong. And the reason that that's the better example, example is because conscience, the word itself means with knowledge. That's the root of it. And what it's saying is you, it's that internal thing that tells you whether what you're doing is right or wrong. And what the Bible tells us in Romans 2.15 is that conscience is common to believers and unbelievers alike. Paul writes in Romans, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So that food offered to idols, what Paul's gently reassuring them here in verses 23 through 25, is that they have no reason to think that it's any more than just meat. The idol is made up. It's not real. So the fact that the food was offered to it, it's still just meat. They don't have to ask the question. They can eat it with a clean conscience, with the knowledge that what they're doing is right. He does this by quoting Psalm 24.1 when he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he points back to scripture that touches on the issue, even though it doesn't specifically mention food offered to idols to help reaffirm them. Reaffirm them. He reinforces the conclusion that he had actually reached early in the chapter where he says an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For will God not, or food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat it and no better off if we do. 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, when you're asking this question, would exercising this freedom violate my conscience? The Corinthians may conclude that the meat offered to idols has no theological significance on its own and they may eat to the glory of God, being thankful for his provision in this circumstance. He's gently reassuring these young believers whose conscience is still fragile that they can partake without honoring a foreign God. However, it does beg, beg the question, in this case, if their conscience is not violated, they can eat. But what's it mean if they look at that meat and they still have that voice inside of them that's saying, don't do it, you shouldn't partake? We all have histories that inform our current experiences. We have things that we've gone through in the past that were idols in our lives uh, as part of our secular society that we may still be sensitive to. Uh, in my family, we have a very long history of alcoholism. On my mom's side, nine uh, brothers and sisters, and five of them has very uh, starkly struggled with alcoholism throughout the years. A uh, very challenging thing, and it's something that they cannot ever do with a clean conscience. You'll never see a beer at any of our family gatherings. Uh, that's all there is to it. Uh, there may be people who lifted their career up to such a high point in their lives that once they become a Christian, they feel like they have to detach because that violates their conscience. And what Paul says in the, in the case of it violating your conscience, in Romans 14, 23 through 23, he writes, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's a pretty strong statement right there. So Paul is now taking something that we called adiaphora, it's in these indifferent things, but saying for the believer or the unbeliever who, whose conscience is saying you should not do this, you should abstain. So if you ask yourself this question, would exercising this freedom violate my conscience, and the answer is yes, you should stop right there. No reason to proceed further on. You probably shouldn't participate or partake in whatever the freedom is that you're looking at. 
And that's our first criteria. Some historical examples of this in the Christian church, watching movies. Uh, going to a movie theater and seeing a movie used to be an issue of Christian freedom that people fell out one way or the other on. Uh, same with listening to secular music, such as rock and roll. Uh, for me, one of the issues that I take a stance on that I don't know if a lot of people do is gambling violates my conscience. Uh, I do not gamble. Um, and I have a guy at work who every time the lottery gets to above a billion dollars, he goes around the office and he collects $10 from each person and buys however many numbers, and they're just trying to win the pool for everyone there. Uh, and I don't participate. And when he asked me why I don't participate, he's like, you know, what's the risk? You're only giving up 10 bucks. You spent more than that on lunch yesterday. Bring your lunch today and you can gamble with us uh, in the office. And I told him, I'm like, my concern is not with the money I lose, it's with the money I'd win. Uh, he's like, don't you want your life to be better? I'm like, I like my life how it is. Um, I'm afraid that if I were to win or if I were to gamble, that would encourage an idol in my heart that would draw me away from God. So yes, I personally draw a hard line because that violates my conscience. However, that doesn't mean that others cannot do that, and it's not an issue that the Bible necessarily speaks clearly to. So just know that it is okay for something to violate your conscience and for you to abstain. Uh, D.A. Carson puts it this way, Eating the meat that has been offered to idols is not intrinsically wrong, but violating one's own conscience is wrong. The conscience is such a delicate spiritual organism that it is easily damaged. To act in violation of conscience damages conscience. It hardens conscience. And surely no Christian who cares about right and wrong wants to live with a damaged conscience, an increasingly hardened conscience. What he's saying there is if you continue to ignore it, it is a fragile organism that over time you'll start to harden your heart, that when you do have your conscience singing up saying, hey, you really shouldn't do this, you may not hear it anymore. You've kind of numbed yourself uh, to the world around you. Simply put, let your conscience do its job. If you ask this question that's violated, don't eat. If you're good, you may be able to partake. But it still doesn't get to the point of, should we partake? For that, we need the other three questions. So moving into question number two, verses 10, 28 through 30. Would exercising this freedom violate someone else's conscience? Paul writes, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And the core principle here is do not exercise your freedom if it may cause another to violate their conscience. This shapes a ministry that is conducive to looking outward. Up to this point, the church would gather. You gathered at the tabernacle, you gathered at the temple. People were brought into the presence of God, and you had to be made clean to do it. There were a list of rules and rituals that allowed you to then come into this space. But Paul is approaching a new issue with the Corinthians. They all lived in home churches. They were worshiping in their individual dwellings, and they were going out to share the gospel. Now, their question and their concern was, how do I go out and partake and help them understand what the gospel is without actually polluting myself or polluting my faith with the society that's around him? His, his mentality is, how do I get them out and sharing the gospel message? The issue is there wasn't as clean of a divide between faith and secular society in Corinth as there is now. Here, you have the option to go into church and you're back out and you're on with your life, if you so choose. There, many of the social events, including 
birthdays, banquets, promotion parties, whatever it may be, may have been held at a, pa a pagan temple. They may have said, hey, on behalf of whomever and Apollo, you are invited to the temple to celebrate this occasion. So the issue that Paul's addressing is how can they go out and still participate in society without paying homage to a foreign god? And in this case, as he mentioned in the previous verses, he's saying, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go. So the scenario he's painting is you are invited to somebody's house and you, you think you should go and you think you should spend that time with them. What do you do? For one, he says go. They go there, and he already addressed, you don't have to ask about the meat offered. Realize this is an issue because they didn't have refrigerators, right? That meat that would be offered at dinner was butchered earlier in the day. It used to have a name, now it's sitting on their plate. However, it was likely meat that was butchered for another purpose. Because in the temple, you kill a cow, you don't have to use all of it for the pagan sacrifice. You use, they burn a portion, they ate a portion, and then the rest was given to the meat market. So chances are, if their host went to the meat market later in the afternoon, bought that meat, it was meat that was used in the temple earlier that day. They know that they can eat with a clear conscience based on his initial statement. But what if someone there, and it says someone, and we'll talk about the, tuple, the couple different conditions for what that could be. What if someone says to you, this meat was offered to idols? What do you do? Now, there's two different reasons that I can see that someone would bring this up. One, on, on uh, behalf of an unbeliever who's there, and the other on behalf of a believer. So you show up to the meal, there's your host who's an unbeliever, and there's another weaker believer there with you, and we're going to look at both those scenarios. Let's say that the unbeliever uh, says to you, hey, just so you know, that meat was offered to idols. Um, why would they bring that up? Chances are they knew that you were a Christian and that you don't pay tribute to foreign gods. They may be telling you on behalf of their conscience, they do not want to serve you something that violates your religious beliefs. So they're letting you know, hey, just as a side note, you may not want to eat this. In that case, Paul is saying abstain for the sake of their conscience. Don't eat it if it's going to make them feel guilty about what they're serving you. In that moment, you take two... Uh, you work to the advantage of the other person instead of to yourself. Yes, you are going to have to abstain for your, from your own freedom. You could eat that without any cause. You have a full stomach. And frankly, meat was expensive and not that common based on how you had to uh, get it. So you're going to be missing out. But it does offer you an opportunity to affirm your faith and talk about your faith to the unbeliever. You then get to say, you know what, you're right. I don't pay tribute to foreign gods. Uh, knowing that this was offered to idols, I, I will choose not to eat tonight, and here's why. Because I have a new life in Christ, because this is my Lord and Savior, and it presents an opportunity to share the gospel with that person. In the case of a weak believer who is sitting by you at the table, there's actually several uh, different benefits. So if you had another person sitting there with you, and they leaned over and said, hey man, just so you know, the meat that he's serving us was offered to idols, he's probably in informing you of that because it violates his conscience and believes it may violate yours as well. By the very act of him bringing it up, he's saying it's a bit of an issue, potentially for me or for you. And there are four reasons, and I'm sorry, I don't have these on the slide, so I'll say them slowly. There are four reasons that it may uh, potentially help to abstain along with that weaker believer. Uh, and the first is it doesn't pressure the weaker believer to violate his or her conscience. 
We just talked about that. Like, if it would violate it, it would be sin for them. We've all had that. I mean, you tell your kids not to give in to peer pressure, but we've all been there, right? It is a real thing. So you're sitting there, and if somebody else who's proclaiming the same faith that you do is comfortably eating, and you're not, how do you give that explanation to your host? Uh, and that lends to the second point. It doesn't uh, present disunity at the unbeliever's home by raising an issue where there need not be one. If the weaker believer doesn't want to eat and you don't eat in solidarity, the issue may not come up or you can at least present a united front as in the initial explanation uh, that we gave them. Uh, third, it demonstrates empathy for your fellow Christian. So not only does it serve them well in that it's not going to pressure them to violate their conscience, you then demonstrate Christ in the action by not uh, partaking. Uh, you look to their needs, you look to build them up and not prioritize yourself. Pointing back to verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So you are looking out for the good of that other uh, Christian. And then finally, you avoid sinning yourself as the fourth one. And this is from uh, 1 Corinthians 8.12. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So Paul actually elevates this issue and says, if you have a weaker believer who would violate their conscience and you choose to partake, you are actually sinning against that other Christian. Um, but then there's a very confusing two, uh, there are two very confusing questions in verses 29 and 30 that follow that. So he says, don't partake. But then it almost seems like he doubles back, right? Let's just read it one more time. So in 29, he says, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And you're like, Wait, Paul, you just said you should, you should abstain. Now it sounds like you're saying, why shouldn't I partake? That's not actually what he's saying here. What he's saying is because it violates their conscience doesn't mean it should necessarily violate yours. So you are purely abstaining for the sake of the other believer. What this does is he's preventing a trend that commonly leads toward legalism. And what legalism is, is saying, since it violates my conscience or your conscience or your conscience or your conscience, it's wrong for all of us and we will not partake. And what that does is it then takes a church that Paul's trying to send out and it drags it back in. Because then you gather this group of believers that say, we don't do these things because it violates our conscience uh, and we are going to keep ourselves pure and holy. And that is not Paul's goal here. His goal is to send them out uh, and to be able to operate freely and share the gospel with the Gentiles. Uh, so that caveat is meant to clarify and to avoid that potential pitfall. Which brings us to our third question and ultimately our main point here in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Would exercising this freedom help me to bear a gospel witness? 1 Corinthians 10.31-33 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. When Paul enters this, uh, this verse, he has a conjunction there that says so. Uh, if you look at the King James Version, it says wherefore there too, or something along those lines. It is basically him transitioning into his conclusion. 
And it's not just the conclusion of uh, this passage that we're looking at today, but everything that he's talked to starting in 1 Corinthians 8.1, saying that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, I think this is best uh, potentially served with an example. Um, I had two buddies with very, very different backgrounds when we were in Korea. One of them, named Ryan, he was a fellow Christian brother. He led our worship team, reminds me a lot of Chapman Pugh. One of those guys who gets up there and plays and sings, and your heart is just drawn into worship with him because of the way that he glorifies his God. Uh, and it just makes you smile and delight. Uh, the other guy was the exact opposite. His name was Ben, partier. Anything that would offend you, he probably did it. Uh, and I, I know you think that's extreme. I mean that. Uh, he probably did it. So very different individuals. One night after uh, we were debriefing, Ben asked me, hey, can we talk for a few minutes about how you live life, how, how you're doing this? Like, I, I want to know what's been working so well for you. He's a slightly younger guy. I said, sure. And when we sat down, I told him, like, hey, man, I, I can tell you what works for me, but our priorities are distinctly different. Like, from the why is the real issue here. Not, not what I do, but why I do it. And without missing a beat, Ben goes, because you believe the same thing that Ryan does. Yeah, I do. I'm like, how do you know what Ryan believes? He goes, well, we were in pilot training together. And one Friday night, Ryan and Ben were out at this big concert, sports bar type area, and there was a band up on stage and hundreds of people playing, and uh, people are having drinks and having a good time. Uh, and at one point in the evening, Ryan runs up to the stage, jumps on, grabs a guitar from one of the guys playing, and starts singing along with them. Uh, and the crowd went crazy, right? They're having fun, and he's joyful, and they're singing. He's got a great voice, so everyone's really enjoying it. Uh, and the manager comes over to their party and says to Ben, he's cut off. No more drinks. Get him off the stage. And Ben turns to the manager and says, he hasn't had a drink all night. That guy is so in love with life and experiences such joy that he can't help but pour it out. Uh, and he attested to Ryan's faith in that moment, so much so that it stuck with him into this later conversation, and it's opened up several conversations since. Now, Ryan that night could have had a beer. That, like, it did not violate his conscience, and I doubt it violated the conscience of many of the people with him. Um, but... By choosing to abstain, he didn't allow them any other uh, aspect to attribute his joy to. It wasn't because of alcohol. Like, they were able to point, but that's because of the gospel that he's up there singing and dancing like that, um, which was just such a beautiful image, and it just showed the impact that living out of freedom in the right way uh, could have. So Ryan deliberately chose to abstain. Paul and his companions also followed this pattern throughout the uh, New Testament. Um, he, they didn't even uh, pull a wage from the Corinthians for the sake of not offering any other explanation for what they were doing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And by doing so, he dispelled any inkling that he was only preaching the gospel for financial benefit. So the focus is not on personal advantage, but the advantage of the gospel. As you see there in uh, verse uh, 33, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many. Pairing that with the first part of that passage right there, where he says, give no offense to the Jews or Greeks, 
let's just make something very clear. He's not saying don't offend them with the truth. We are not talking about the category of things that are very clear in the Bible, like the gospel itself. And the gospel is very offensive. When you share the gospel with someone, they're either going to be overjoyed or really upset if they understood what you were saying, because you are telling them you are lost in a need of a Savior, and that will most likely violate some idol in their lives. Whatever else it is they hold is true, they will probably be offended. That's not what Paul's talking to. We're talking about Christian freedoms, these middle grounds. He's saying don't use one of these freedoms in a way that may give offense to anyone. It's like the social customs we talked to at the beginning. Knowing the law, yes, you can't violate that, but don't violate these other things that may put up unnecessary barriers. Put the advantage not in your own court, but in the court of the gospel. Don't seek your own benefit. You've already received it. If you're a Christian, you won. You have eternal life with Christ. You have joy that you cannot experience apart from him. You don't need to then indulge in all these other things in the world. You can give them up for the sake of the gospel and give the advantage to that aspect of your life. Many of you are living out the gospel very well in your workplaces with friends, family, and sometimes it can be frustrating. But if you do that, if you live out those freedoms that way, when the day comes that you do get to share the gospel explicitly with words and prayer with that person, you have a whole life of actions that have backed it up to that point. You have given the advantage to the gospel and what you were doing, uh, and now you can share it with them. Same thing's the, uh, true in the opposite way. If you shared the gospel, but it didn't seem to garner any fruit, it didn't seem to grasp that person's heart, realize that living out your freedoms in a way that may bear witness to Christ could produce that fruit later on. Ultimately, uh, Paul declares this. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23, this is him talking about the lengths that he's gone um, to try to accommodate that and not give offense. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Amen. That is, that is, the, that is how we live out our Christian freedom. If it doesn't violate your conscience and it doesn't violate their conscience, ask, will this bear gospel witness? And Paul has said, I have looked at that in every aspect of my life, and I can say, yes, this is how I'm doing it. His objective is to glorify God in everything he says or does. Just a, one of the little contentious things here on this one is actually his difference in choices with Titus and Timothy. And this would have been a little contentious between Titus and Timothy as well. He had Timothy circumcised in order to be able to go share the gospel and told Titus he could not. I don't know what that experience would be like as an adult male, but it couldn't be pleasant. But in either case, he did it with intentionality. One, not to give in in Galatians uh, to the um, people who were promoting the law and this kind of Judaizer-type uh, mentality with Titus, and then to provoke and allow missions with Timothy so that he could bring Timothy in with him into the temple. 
Paul was solely focused with him and his companions on bearing witness to that gospel message. And that brings us to our fourth question. In 11.1, you guys are looking at your Bibles and you're like, man, you went one verse too far. Right? That's fair. Uh, 11.1 is a bridge. Some people connect it with 10, some people connect it with 11, both because it fits into my sermon, and because many people put it in 10, we're going to look at it here this morning. Uh, Paul says, uh, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So our last question is, would exercising this freedom imitate Jesus? If somebody gets up here, and the key for the day, the concluding statement was, imitate me. You're like, ah, I don't know, man. Um, Unless it was Colby. If Colby got up here and he said, imitate me, you're like, all right, I'm going to do that. And, and the reason you might be okay with doing that is the same reason that Paul is able to say this to the Corinthians and say, be imitators of me. Because Paul has looked at every aspect of his life and said, am I doing this to the glory of God? And then chosen that path. So when he's saying, imitate me, he's saying, I've taken stock of my own life. I've taken stock of how I'm living out my Christian freedom, and I want to live it out for the sake of the gospel. So please imitate that. And that's, that's the advice he's given these young believers. And he really had. Look at Paul's life. Uh, he gave up his right to a wage. He willingly forfeited his right to eat meat for their benefit. He was arrested three times, shipwrecked three times, and beaten with rod three times, stoned once. In any of those circumstances, uh, shipwrecked, arrested or beaten with rods, you do it the first time and you're like, probably don't want to do that again. You do it a second time and you really don't want to do it again. Most of these things probably brought him near death. The fact that he did it a third time shows that there is something in his life that he was doing that was more important to him than his own personal safety. And he was then able to take that example and pour it out and say, do what I'm doing. Live this life that is poured out for the sake of Christ, not seeking my own benefit, but his. So the first reason, that's the first reason that Paul says that. The second reason that Paul says that is because if you answer those first three questions, you still may be in a position where you're not entirely sure what the right thing to do is. I promise you right now, well, right now if you were to try to Google it on your phones, you'd return zero results, right? Because this place is made out of brick and concrete. Later, if you Google any Christian freedom on your phone and say, should I be involved in politics? I assure you, you are going to get a bunch of responses from all kinds of different people, right? Google will give you whatever answer you are looking for. Uh, and your personal desires will bias the way you take in that information. What Paul is also saying to them here is mimic those within your church who have thought over these things. Paul's saying, I led you to the gospel. I am discipling you. Mimic me in the areas where you ask these first three questions and you still don't know. Maybe you get to something, you're like, well, it doesn't violate my conscience. It doesn't violate anyone else's conscience. I'm not entirely sure if it would bear gospel witness. What do I do? Paul's saying, look at Chris McCraney. Look at Joe Kraft. Look at Ryan Pugh. Look at Alex Chapman. Look at all these men and women in the church who are living out that gospel witness well. And ask them. Turn to them for advice on these issues. If you go to Google, you don't know what you're getting. There's a reason that we have a congregation and a body to help uh, encourage each other in these uh, different ways, in these contentious topics. Uh, and ultimately, Paul is telling them to imitate Christ. 
uh, his final verse says, I am of Christ, says, I am an imitator of Christ. Paul wants them to embody the humility of Christ in every aspect of their life, including worship. Worship is our humble and grateful response to what God has done for us in Christ. Therefore, our worship habits should reflect a gospel-formed humility. Paul is calling the church to compare their present worship habits to Jesus Christ himself, to a humble embodiment, the humble embodiment of the gospel par excellence. It's Tim Keller. When we hear imitate Christ, I don't know if you guys are like me, but when I initially hear that and I think, do all to the glory of God and imitate Christ as I do it, you think of the favorable things. You think of Christ sitting here and schooling the Pharisees as he holds on to his moral fortitude. You think of him being benevolent and kind. You think of him engaging and going out uh, and representing God well. What Paul's talking to here in terms of Christian freedom is actually pointing to Christ's suffering. It's pointing to Christ giving up his freedoms. Uh, so he's pointing to the aspect of Christ where he's calling us to go and die to ourselves. Uh, in Luke 9.23, Jesus said, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What does it look like to die to self? If you get to the end of this and you're, you're looking at this Christian freedom, don't think of your own benefit. Think of what would it look like if I didn't take my own desires into account here and thought what would give glory to God in this circumstance. What that means is often it's not going to be what you can do, not what you're permitted to do, not what the culture, society, family, friends are telling you you should do. It's going to be doing what lives out the gospel, what bears witness, what gives glory to God in that moment. And I'll tell you, if you wait till that moment to make that decision on some of these issues, it's going to be very difficult to do because there's all kinds of other influences, including your own personal desires and suffering. They're going to get a weighing vote uh, in that moment. So we need to carefully consider, like Paul did, in each aspect of our lives, how are we living this out? How are we choosing to give glory to God? If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know that he came to earth, let's, let's look at the ways he gave up his freedoms. He came to earth. He was infinite, transcendent, beyond. He created all of this. He first sacrificed his freedom by becoming human. He now obeyed the laws that he put into place. Physics, chemistry, biology. He's limited. He is now in a broken body that is going to deter over, uh, deteriorate over time. He's limited his knowledge. He was cast out, beaten, stoned, and crucified freely. He could have stopped it. The secular wisdom in what he was doing would say, if you're really the son of God, come down from the cross. That is what he was free to do. He could have done it, and he would have been justified if he did. The reason he didn't was so that he could bear that gospel witness. It was so that he could give glory to the Father in heaven. It's so that he could usher in the Holy Spirit. It's so that he could lift up the name of God and provide us a way to know him. If you do not know God in that way, you have not experienced freedom. You are not truly free. You can't seek fulfillment in and honor any earthly idol. They will only enslave you. If your idol is wealth, you're enslaved to your bank account and your possessions. If your idol is a relationship, you're enslaved to a fallible person's admiration and affirmation. If your idol is your career, then you're enslaved to an employer and a customer. 
Aside from dying to self and living a new life with Christ, you cannot be free. For those of you who have not yet experienced the freedom in Christ, you can experience that new life today. You can experience true freedom on Memorial Day weekend. For those of you who are Christians and are stewarding that Christian freedom, I encourage you to walk through these questions in areas of your life where you're not sure, am I really giving glory to God there? Do I know that I'm doing that? Take stock, go through your marriage, your job, your personal time, your wealth, whatever it is, and say, am I giving glory to God in this aspect? Examine yourselves. And those of you who are more mature in your faith, who have been walking this for a while, give credit where credit is due. Acknowledge the areas in your life where you have overcome some of these obstacles, or you have reached a point where you're saying, I am giving glory to God in this, and help bring others along with you. Help disciple others in the church uh, and lift them up so that we can all uh, give glory to God in all that we say or do. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team uh, back up to the stage here. Uh, we're going to uh, take communion here in a minute. First, I'm going to read one more passage of Scripture and then pray for us. Uh, for those of you uh, who are Christians, this is the time where we take to remember what Christ has done for us. We celebrate this freedom by partaking in the blood and the body of Jesus. For those who don't have that relationship uh, with Jesus yet, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to share that joy and that new life with you. But we do ask that you just politely let those elements uh, pass by and abstain from eating today. Uh, I'm going to close this with a passage from Romans 6, verses 5 through 11, talking about the new life and freedom that we have in Christ. In Romans 6, Paul writes, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God so that you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this new life that we live in you. Lord, there are so many pressures from the culture around us. You present us a, an easy burden. Our, our burden is easy and our yoke is light. You present us a faith uh, that just revolves around your love, that gives us extraordinary freedom to glorify you in every aspect of life. Lord, we ask that you help guide us through that with all the pressures to conform to one party or another, to those who partake or those who don't partake. Help us to see your wisdom in a third way. Help us to understand that whether we eat or drink, we can do either of those to your glory, that we can choose to engage and go out on mission into the world around us in a way that lifts you up and makes much of you, not having to be burdened by conscience, but honoring it in the areas where uh, you lead us. Father, let your Holy Spirit dwell in here. Encourage the hearts of your believers. Encourage the hearts of those who don't know you yet to come to a saving faith and relationship with you. Help us to boldly go on mission for you, spreading this good news of your gospel this Memorial Day weekend. In your holy name we pray.